if no one knows you exist and you're not doing anything and you're sitting at home being like, why is nobody hiring me to write for their games? Well, there's, you know, a reason for that, maybe. Like, people need to know that you're even around. People who create, they, they make a, it's a habit. What's going on, everybody? It's Matt Kenyon, and you're listening to Composer Code. Composer Code is the show for video game music makers of all stripes who simply want to make better music. Isn't that what we all want? The best way to learn how to make better music is, of course, to dig down deep into the experiences and the best practices of proven creatives. One of those proven creatives is Chris Madigan, composer of the wildly successful game Cuphead. Now, what can I say about Cuphead that hasn't already been said countless times across the internet? It's hard. The music is incredible. The art is amazing. I sat down with Chris. We talked about his origins as a musician and a composer, how he steeped himself in the big band era of music Cuphead's aesthetic demanded in order to write the soundtrack. It's like the composer equivalent to a method actor. He's like the Daniel Day-Lewis, but composer version. Anyway, he offers four words of timeless advice for new composers, talks about how our habits and our attitudes affect so much of our creative lives. Oh, and he wrote 20 minutes of music total before composing Cuphead. 20 minutes. I mean, my mom played piano, and she, you know, wanted all of her kids to play something. I think I was the only one that really stuck with it, but, uh, so I played, I was started on piano and, and I hated it. And which I think is also pretty common. But, Just out uh, of curiosity, I kind of want to dive into that. Why did you hate it? Because I also took lessons and hated them too. Didn't want to play it. Didn't want to play it. Was that, it the music or think, is it boring or some, everything in between? Yeah, everything. That was the, I think, you know, instruments are a finicky, uh, you know, I like I get when kids want to try things and then they get bored of them, but also like, I think I think a good lesson for parents is to, uh, you know, if your kid wants to take drums and you want them to take piano, let them take drums anyways, <laughs> yeah. because they might they might actually want to like if you're you know, right. you're not interested in doing something, it's not going to amount to much. Sure, sure. So now you know everyone's like everyone and their dog and myself included now is like oh I wish I played piano better, but I also I remember that I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> at the time so sure, sure. like I, pra- I practice it now and I, I, I like it but it's a bit more functional for me now but, right right so I think you have to have the uh, whatever it, you know can anyone really say what attracts them to anything you know that, everyone yeah, is drawn that, everyone is drawn to something but you, you don't necessarily know why so yeah that's true it's a good so point. I mean I like I liked music um, but I didn't want to play piano and we uh uh, I mean, I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again. We had uh, my recollection that we had four four tapes in the car. Uh, David Bowie, Let's Dance. Um, the Traveling Wilburys. All right. The Smurfs, a Smurfs album. I don't remember which one. It had Smurf and beer on it, and something else, which was pretty funky. And then uh, Billy Joel's Greatest Hits. Oh, that's and not bad. I was a big. My mom was a big Billy Joel fan, and subsequently I was a big Billy Joel fan. And uh, that was the first major rock concert I saw. It was Billy Joel Stormfront Tour in, I think, 1990, 
91 seems a little late, but uh, it was, uh, pardon my language, it's fucking rad. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, I mean, we had a, we had a, a, a videotape of Billy Joel Live in Leningrad, which is a fantastic concert, which everyone should watch. Um, and he might have been, it might, like, I think it was one of the first concerts uh, that happened after the wall came down, if I if I recall, wow. um, I haven't seen it in years. I should watch it again. But in any case, um, I was just always drawn to the drums and watching uh, Liberty DeVito, who was Billy Joel's drummer at the time. Yeah. Uh, like he was just having a blast and he was what, pounding. Yep. And so, you know, I was a kid and I wanted to be a rock drummer. And uh, so there was a compromise made and I started taking classical percussion lessons or, you know, basic you know, uh, snare drum technique kind of mm-hmm. things, which I also didn't really love, which is funny because it ended up being the bulk of what I do. But, you know, <clears throat> I still didn't want to focus that much on technique. I wanted to play the drums. Sure. So, so I mean, I, you know, I reluctantly practiced that to an extent, and I slowly built up. I made, like, a small drum set of what I had. And then finally, I think when I was 13, I got my first actual drum set. Nice. My parents relented. And, you know, I... Like, I actually wanted to practice. I practiced all the time. So I got good at that and played throughout high school. And also ended up, you know, I still, I played in the concert band in high school and did other, you know, more band or orchestral kind of things. Um, And then took a few years off after high school because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I did well in high school. I won some, some band awards and... Everyone was like, oh, you should go into music. And I was like, that's a totally idiotic idea. Why would anyone do a music degree? That's like, um, you know, to me, it didn't seem practical. At the time. Right. Now I realize that people do it because they actually want to do it. But so, you know, I think uh, I took a few years off and then um, ended up just by happenstance hearing about uh, the university percussion ensemble putting on a concert. And I was like, I used to do that. That sounds cool. So I went and checked it out. And I was like, you know, that was the switch kind of went on. And I was like, okay, I'd like, you know, this is actually what I want to do. And I should get back into it. So, you know, I started, did my undergrad in, in you know, legit percussion and other uh, various things. And kind of went from there. So that was that was my background. Did you, were you composing at all throughout this time, like in your sort of your formative years? Uh, no. When did you start Based, composing? I mean, I've written a couple, wrote a couple kind of tunes that never really, I think one of them got performed, but it was kind of like I wrote the riffs and then the actual writer of the band wrote the tune proper. I used to have, I was in a electro-funk band in Saskatchewan. Okay. It was awesome. We were really the best band ever. But uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so I, I mean, I had a couple things for there that I had written. I came up with you know, the drum parts and stuff. But uh, and then, really, like, you know, I did a year uh, in the jazz department at the University of Toronto, like four years ago, mm-hmm. maybe five years ago now, I guess, because I wanted to do my masters, and it was just no, I had no way that I could, I had that much time to do it, so I ended up only doing one year. But I wrote. I wrote a tune that I did on my recital there, which I, I still think is a pretty cool tune. It's on my SoundCloud page. 
And I, and also that same year, there was this big multidisciplinary, um, art installation that we did. It was like this all, this is all night, uh, art festival here called Nuit Blanche. And I think they have them throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had this really weird project in a tent with all these projections and all participants with their brains hooked up to things. And, uh, so we had, I wrote some background, like, you know, ambient music for that that we improvised over. Um, and that's also, I mean, it's all just like processed marimba stuff. Um, it sounds kind of, it's, you know, radically different than anything on Cuphead. But so, you know, the, the output of anything I've written could be, you know, just about 20 minutes of music tops before this. Wow. That's, that's pretty incredible. All of it. Excellent. Of course. But (laughs) right. Naturally. Yes. Yeah. So it's, I found that so interesting because, you know, all the attention, you know, that the, the cup has uh, been getting in the soundtrack, uh, it's well-deserved, in my opinion, incredible soundtrack. Um, and it's so interesting because I'm sure people see you as a composer first, but it kind of sounds like you see yourself as a percussionist first. Is that is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't. Re- it was like even a lot of my close friends didn't really even know I was working much on this project or some of them knew I was writing music for a game, but it was never like, we didn't really ever discuss it. So I, like, I still think people who know me are kind of like, now they're like, we don't know you at all. Cause I didn't, this wasn't like, a, I wasn't always telling people like, Oh, I'm writing this music for this really cool game. It was just kind of always like I was doing it in my free time. Right. So, so I still, I don't even think, you know, people who I who've known me for more than a few years would consider me a composer first either. Like everyone just knows me as a percussionist or a drummer. So did you, and that's, that is how I see myself. Like that's the most, the bulk of my formal training. And yeah. I see composition as, you know, like I've always wanted to write, but I, you know, I need kind of need projects to write for, I think would be sure. the thing. Like I was never really inspired to write for much before other than these specific events. Right. And right. this was a specific thing, but I'm not like someone, I think there are actual, you know, like somebody like, not that I would compare myself to Beethoven, but I think he was a guy who like had this deeper, like he would sit down and just write. And some right. people have that urge that they need to create. And I, you know, you can want to do that, but I, I, without having a proper outlet for it, like, I don't know why I would sit down and write big band charts for, sure. if I didn't have a project because right. they're never going to get played. Like why was the point? So, um, so this was, you know, this was a really good outlet. Did you grow up playing video games and were you inspired at all by video game music as a kid? Uh, I did. I stopped playing games pretty seriously about the time I started when I went back to university because I was like, you know, you have to, I sort of had to pick. Yeah. Um, and it's higher they're, education they're so, or video games. Yeah. Well, they're so time consuming and, and I'm not someone, you know, at the time I wasn't really a casual gamer. I was playing a lot, mostly RPGs. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I've spent a lot of time at Chad and Jared, the, the developers of Cuphead, you know, on their couch growing up because we're we've been friends for a long time. And those those is more playing fighting games or Bomberman or, or Death Tank. We had some party games that we played, but uh, on my own, I played a lot of um, mostly RPGs and Resident Evils. Those were my favorites. What was your and favorite was, game growing up? What was your favorite RPG? Uh. I mean, Final Fantasy VI is incredible. It's an incredible experience. Yep. Uh, Chrono Trigger, like you know, obvious ones. Lunar, a lot. You know, a lot of those working designs games are, are amazing. And not really many people know them. Because mm-hmm. um, I had, you know, I had a Saturn of all things. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so there's you know there's some more unknown games, but typically yeah, I just like gen- basic RPG games were kind of what I was into, and and certainly I was aware of of the music in a lot of them. Um, I mean, particularly obviously with the Final Fantasies and anything that uh, Mitsuda wrote. Xanagears mm-hmm. I loved as well, as well as Chrono Trigger, like incredible soundtracks. Yep. But I didn't really like study them. And for this project either, I didn't. Um, I deliberately didn't really check out much video game music, except for there's a, there's a few homages in in the Cuphead, which are a couple which are extremely obvious, and a couple which I think are obvious and no one has found yet. But other than that, I didn't really spend much time studying game game music because you know we weren't trying to write game music we were trying to write big band music sure sure so i did you know the one thing that i did find like i did listen to and i found inspiring and it was interesting going back and listening to it because i hadn't heard of them in a long time were both final fantasy six VI and seven because i think that those are soundtracks that um especially compared you know like everyone a lot of people really like eight like i think eight is an incredible score but i think that it's i don't love the um the sound of it like it's almost a i don't want to say generic like it's not like six and seven have really interesting you can hear a few seconds of either game and and know what it's from because of the actual sound samples right but also like six and seven have themes and leitmotifs that go through the entire thing and like like final fantasy seven like when i was re-listening to it and actually just putting it on and listening to it Mm -hmm. i was i was amazed at how many of the tunes are tied together with the same material which you don't really notice so i mean like that's that was an inspiration and that's we you know i tried to do that certainly with cuphead with the uh what has i think now been dubbed the inkwell theme which makes you know the main the world map theme it's just the four note motif but it's on all the world maps it's on the tutorial it's on a bunch of you know kind of like sneaks its way into a bunch of things and it it ties together a bunch of the the non-boss themes I like. I don't necessarily at this point think that I'm. I was learning as I was going, um, but I did work pretty hard on the process of trying to do as good a job as possible. So I like. I don't necessarily not consider myself at this point a composer, but it's just not not my primary thing. Like I think of someone who, like a, you know, maybe the maybe that word implies something that's more long term, like someone who does this regularly for their living, whereas I'm, you know. Maybe a beginning composer would be a better, that early career uh, startup composer. Sure. Well, this is, 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 is a bit more way to uh, describe where I'm at. But well, I would uh, venture to say that your first project out of the gate was a slam dunk. Um, so I think you're on the right track if this is a, if you're an early composer. Um, well, you know, it took. I, I will say that uh, it took a hell of a long time. I think that's, you know, the lesson there is, for me, is that it's, you know, as much as I hate dumb cliches or anything related to sports, you know, 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration kind of thing is, is, you know, kind of how this worked in a lot of ways. Sure. Like, there was a lot of prep work that was done and a lot of listening and just a lot of studying, you know, how they actually, how these tunes written and how you arrange stuff like that and so you know it's just it's kind of just the amount of time you put in i've done it you yeah. know since i've been reading a lot in the past year about uh 
the creative process and the concept of talent and stuff. And pretty well, the universal opinion is that like almost nobody is like even people who associate with being these really creative types who like were born like you know Mozart and stuff like. It's pretty well been proven that Mozart wrote garbage for the first big chunk of his life, or his dad wrote it, or, you know, whatever else. Like, he was learning. Yeah. And, you know, like, the the only pieces of his that, like, that, you know, he was writing symphonies when he was four, but what's, you know, what's the first one of his that gets played? He was, you know, in his late teens or his early 20s or something. When sure. The first, the first you know, the, the stuff that of his that which has lasted and still gets played, like, nobody ever plays the early stuff. Like, there's still that, there's still the process there of that he was working at. That's, and, a, that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean that's that's not my point. That's uh, <laughs> I've read that now in, in many books, but it, it seems to be the general people who create they they make a it's a habit. But yeah, Twilight Twilight Tharp has a great she hers was the first book I read, and it's still I think one of the best. But her book is called The Creative Habit, and that's you know it's called that because that's what it is. She gets up literally every day at like five in the morning and then goes to the dance studio and choreographs and, and works stuff out. And she's been doing this for 60 years or something, you know? And that's, um, like, it's not like everything that people, these creative types do, like it's, they don't just like write stuff and then it's, it's perfect. And it comes out to fully form. Like there's a lot of revision. There's a, probably in a lot of cases, a lot of throwing stuff away. Um, I, you know, at least I think with people who have, maybe not a prolific output, but it's all of a high level. Like, you know, it's something that they, they work on every day still. Right. And I think that's, that's sort of how I felt with this, this project too. It's like, it didn't come out um, fully formed the way it is. It took mm. a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of prep work to get to that point. I'm super curious when you uh, began composing for Cuphead, I remember you saying it was, it was a pretty long process, several years. Is that is that right? And so it came out in September 2017. So it was almost four years. Now all that bulk of that was not spent writing, but I think it was you know from the end, from 2013 summer 2013 for about two and a half to three years. Mm-hmm. That was the process. You know, every day, three to five hours a day, getting up and just doing that. You yeah. know, studying maybe you know like. There was times when I was busy doing other things. Like it was always a balancing act. Right. But it kind of had to be something that I consistently did every day. Like I'm not doing, you know, right now I'm doing a lot of other like theoretical prep work. Like I'm just going back and doing, you know, harmony work out of books and stuff um, that I feel I maybe didn't do well at in school. So I'm kind of trying to like, you know, I'm like, I'm studying other things. So if someone asked me if they were like right now, you know, can you do a big band chart? I, it would take me a few weeks to just get back into it. I'd have to go and relook at all, you know all of the the big band techniques and voicings and everything, and sort of re familiarize myself with them. So if you if you stop doing it, or in my case, anyways, if you stop doing it for a little bit, you kind of you have to refresh yourself. Yeah. So I think there's such a lesson there, man, in that it's to have the humility like you did to say, you know, I don't know how to, how to, how to write big band. Like, I'm not going to pretend I do. I'm going to go consult those that, those who have gone before me. I'm going to consult the resources. I'm going to go to the source and I'm going to study it and figure it out. And I think when composers can have that humility to say, you know, I, I don't really know how to write this style track, but I will, I'll work my butt off and I'll study it. 
and and I'll you know I'll bang my head against my piano until something good comes out by by There's going. A lot of you that. Know, yeah, that that's actually I wanted to ask you when you when during this time where you're getting up for three to five hours, I'm sure every day looked totally different because you mentioned you have composing, you have study, you're you're analyzing books. What would you say was like the biggest chunk of that time? Was it listening? Was it transcribing? Was it composing? I'm super curious, like a day in the life of Chris Madigan writing Cubhead from 2013 to 2017 or whatever. What did that look like for you? I mean, I think listening was a major part of it. Um, part of it is just to get, you know, it's tough to come up with ideas. It's a, you know, when you're writing something in a, in a derivative style, um, I think it's a big challenge because you don't want to, like it, it needs to have the uh, the things that it needs to have all the conventions that, that you didn't invent in order to sound like something like from that specific era. But then it still needs to not sound you know necessarily like plagiarized or anything, right? Sure. So a lot of it was was trying to come up with ideas that were familiar but not you know just direct lifts from something, um, which I you probably I guess at this point you could get away with because I think a lot of that stuff is public domain, but it wouldn't be like not cool sure <laughs> you know yeah sure, sure um so i mean i for me it's like if you sit down and listen to an hour of, of a certain type of music and then go away and do the dishes or something you might find yourself like humming some sort of tune that's mm -hmm. a uh, you know a hybrid of what you've been listening to and then it's like you know write it down maybe go back and listen to those things and see like is this from one of those tunes or did i actually like make this up myself right right like that was like that's kind of like a way of a lot of that process worked was just immersing myself in it and then letting it sort of stew around for a bit and then you know seeing what i ended up I'd get a melody in my head and it'd be like okay this what is, does this sound too familiar or does this like sound authentic but not a direct quote from something if you want to write like a rock tune put turn on the turn on the radio and then go in the other room and, you know, you're going to hear it. You might hear it and be like, that sounds familiar, but I don't quite know what it is. Yeah. You know, but but then you might get ideas that way or you might, you know, the beat might be turned around. You can't really tell. And it's going to sound totally weird. But, you know, all the you know, it's there's not many ideas left out there to, to get. That yeah, been done. That's a good point. So um, any any help you can give yourself. is. Uh, yeah, I interviewed. um 8-Bit Music Theory, who, by the way, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but he actually just put out a video analyzing the cup, one of the Cuphead songs and uh, kind of dissecting the arrangement of it, and it's really good. Have you heard I, of that channel? I, I saw that video, yeah. He had a line uh, in an interview that I, I had with him where he said the difference between plagiarizing a song and writing a good song is that rather than stealing from one song, you're stealing from six you know, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying about how when you want to be derivative, um, you know, it, it, there are certain things that are obviously derivative. But when you're yeah. when you're making thing something in the style of, of something like Big Band, um, it's like you kind of have to take some of those cliches that make it that style. You know, um, it's just yeah, a if you don't of, use those, then you're not writing in that style. Right, exactly. Like, that's kind of what it comes down to as well. So how can you balance that? And also, I think people, like, you know, every, like people freak out now about originality. I think it, it, the people who actually give a shit about, like, somebody, you know, writing something original are not 
are not making something that sounds too much like someone else have are people who've never actually had to do that. Yeah. You know, like that's a good point. Freak out about it. And it's like, you know, literally nothing original has been done in, right. you know, maybe hundreds of years, essentially. Right. Um, yeah. It's just like, it's all about, um, taking what's there and then adding to it or doing something different with it. People, I think people just need to not be so uptight. Like, you know, it's one thing if you're like literally stealing something and another thing, if like, you know, rock bands are getting accused of plagiarizing all the time. And it's like every fucking rock tune sounds the same anyways. Sure. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love pop music too, but like there's only so much that can be done in that field as well. When you sat down to compose, what was your go-to instrument or software or tools that you used to kind of get the ideas out from your head um, onto paper or in the computer? Um, I mean, all I really had was the keyboard, which I did pretty well all the writing on. Um, and then I had Sibelius with um, Garrett and Big Band plugin. And that was, that was it. Gotcha. So yeah. d- did you... Um, did you find that you would arrange all of the parts on piano and then once you kind of have them in your mind, you would sort of distribute them to various instruments or would you kind of have a melody on piano, put it in Sibelius and then start playing around with different sounds? Because one of the things that is difficult for me to grasp as I'm learning more about music and instrumentation is which timbres of instruments sound good with certain chord tones, uh, basically mm-hmm. saying how to arrange, like one of the things that is, is most impressive about Cuphead is um, the fact that you can have this melody that sounds so good on a solo piano, and yet it can also be redistributed to this big band style and really kind of like expand and evolve with dynamics and interest curves and things like that. And I mm-hmm. think that arrangement is is equally as impressive as the composition so how did you how did you do that what was your workflow for figuring all that out and, and arranging it i mean a lot, a lot of it might have just been fluke that it turned out well um but i did have a good i mean i had a good teacher as well and he was always able to look at my charts and you know i learned a lot from him to the point where I, by the end I, I was pretty you know i had a good idea of what was and what what wasn't going to work but you know, I think learning the instrument ranges and learning, you know, don't go too high in the berry sacks because it's going to get, you know, uncontrollably, uh, there's not really much you can do up there except it's sort of loud, you know, and, uh, sure. like you, you sort of learn the ranges and if you want, if you want a melody that's too low in the trumpets then it's literally just going to be too low in the trumpets and you have to put it somewhere else. Right. Um, so you kind of just learn, I think where, uh, everything should go. Um, I don't know if you're necessarily specifically referring to like the solo, like the solo piano stuff and then like the ragtime, um, arrangements of those tunes. Is that also what you're implying or? Yeah. I'm basically just saying, so you have a melody and you, you can arrange it for Mm -hmm. piano and then it's like, okay, now it's come time to distribute these voices to various instruments, kind of like deciding what does the Barry sax get? What does the trumpet get? And Mm -hmm. why does that sound good? I imagine that comes from just lots of listening to the source material and and identifying, you know, okay, the, the root typically goes to this instrument, or was it more just kind of trial and error? Uh, I mean, there was certainly trial and error and bringing things to my, my teacher. Um, but also, 
you know, I was doing a lot of, uh, like there's a, the book, a couple books I really liked were, uh, Gary Lindsay's arranging for jazz ensemble, I think okay. it's called. And the, uh, the Berkeley Press book, uh, arranging, I think also it's called Arranging for Large Jazz Ensemble. Um, they're both excellent books and, you know, they kind of, they kind of lay things out pretty clearly as to like, this works because of this, this doesn't work because of that. Um, the ragtime ensemble stuff, I, I do want to, I'll go back to that anyways. Like, I wrote a lot of those ragtime tunes on piano originally because I was studying a lot of Scott Joplin stuff and those are very derivative of Joplin. Right. Um, but the ones that ended up like Inkwell Isle one and two elder cattle's theme, like those, those got put into from the piano versions to the large ensemble. And those were literally, I just looked at the Gunther Schiller, Scott Joplin read back book arrangements. And, um, I pretty well used verbatim his instrumentation and the way that he, um, how he distributed the, the instruments and, you know, the voicings and stuff throughout. Uh, those, I mean, those charts, they had those at the University of Toronto as well. Um, and those were very useful to study. And if any, if you can listen to the, if you can find the recordings of, uh, there's, I think there's a couple of LPs. Uh, the one I have, it's the Scott Joplin Redback book, it's called, uh, with the New England Ragtime Conservatory. Um, you know, the instrumentation is pretty well exactly like what I used in Cuphead. Cause that's where I got that from. I think they're on YouTube. They're all. They're actually. They, I, they were kind of hard to find, often. But um, is are there were there any other resources, books, um, that that were kind of go to uh, tools for you that I could maybe share with the listeners? Yes. Let me pull up my my list that I made. I mean, aside from whatever scores you can get your hands on, and I read a lot of. Uh, not that these were necessarily useful, but you always. There's always something to learn, but I read a lot of biographies. Like I read a couple Duke Ellington biographies, and you know, a couple on Scott Joplin, yeah, uh, Benny Goodman. Like you know, like there's all these. Um, there's a lot of musician biographies, which are you know, just if you're trying to get into the heads of people of that era, it's a good idea. That's really but, cool. Um, I mean, the the Mark Levine books are, and specifically if you're looking at specific like writing techniques, the Mark Levine books are good. Okay. Um, he's kind of written, it's, it, it's, it's dense and kind of complex, but I, you know, like he kind of has written, I think like the definitive jazz theory book, it sounds like, or jazz harmony. And he also has a really good piano book that I'm working out of right now. Scott, I studied the Scott Joplin complete works. It's easy to find. You can get it uh, online, but it's, I think New York public library like assembled it and it's everything that, that Joplin wrote except for, except for his opera, I believe. Okay. And, you know, that's a, that's a super useful thing to have. It's like, you know, every Scott Joplin piano piece. Um, Gunther Schuller's books, Early Jazz and The Swing Era, are also very useful. They All Played Ragtime was a good book by Harriet Janis and Rudy Blesch. Maybe a little hard to find, but, um, and then, I mean, I, I, I bought a ton of other, like, uh, Inside the score, I bought I bought a uh, uh, Fred Sturm arranging book, um, Henry Manzini, but I, I didn't really. I mean, I need to need to actually study them, but I didn't actually ever really delve too deeply into those. Um, but yeah, I mean, so aside from those books, the two that I mentioned before, arranging for large jazz ensemble, Berkeley Press, and Gary Lindsay's jazz arranging techniques, are, I think those are both excellent books, and they they lay it out 
fairly simply. Um, and also, if I don't know if it's still up, but Gary Lindsay has a somebody recorded like a masterclass he did, um, I think at the University of Miami. It's on YouTube, and it's like an hour long, and he just breaks down like the idea. He just breaks down uh, voice scenes, all the drop voice scenes, the chord substitutions and stuff in like the most simple and easy to follow way. And he does it, you know, it's doing it on a chalkboard and it's, uh, it's, that's on, it was on YouTube. Hopefully it's still up, but that's an awesome video and it really clears things up. The one thing that struck me as you're saying all these things is, um, that you must be a pretty avid reader because these are a lot of books and I can tell that you really dove into the topic. Are you, uh, are you a reader or were you a reader before Cuphead? Uh, I was, and I still am. I read as much as possible. I don't know. It's a good way to learn things. Going back, this kind of relates to what we were sort of talking about earlier, but I like to discuss it. But I mean, like, for me, this project was, you know, I, I looked at every avenue possible because I was asked by two of my dear friends to write music for them. And, you know, initially I was like, I did, you know, I tried to do the best job I could because I didn't want to disappoint them. And then once they got, you know, once the game sort of took off a bit more, you know, after that E3 trailer, we were kind of like, oh shit, there's going to be lots of people maybe playing this game. And then it was kind of like, you know, I, I wanted to do a good job um, out of respect for the people buying the game, maybe buying the soundtrack. I didn't want to look like an idiot. Right. So, you know, there's always like, there's always a reason to like do a bit more research maybe into the topic. Uh, but, you know, also like this is a, this is a music that I have a lot of respect for. Right. And I didn't want, it was super important for me that this did not come across like a parody of any sort. Sure. You know, there, there are a couple of goofy quotes, you know, like what Ride of the Valkyries is on there. Um, cause it, you know, it was used in Bugs Bunny. Sure. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's parody. I think that's maybe setting it a bit more. I like to think that the reason that it was used in Apocalypse Now is because the, uh, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Oh, what's, that, what's that actor? It's, is it Martin Sheen? No, no, no. It's, it's the other guy. Um, not Marlon Brando. It's been forever since I've seen that movie. No, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna Google this. I'm gonna Google it too. Let's see if we can who wins. Um, let's uh, see. Kil, well, Kilgore, Kilgore is the okay, character. Yes, That's who I yes, was thinking. Yeah. Of. yeah. In any case, my my assumption is, or like now because Cuphead was made in the 1930s, I assume that he's using this uh, in the Vietnam War. Because he's a, a cuphead fan, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know? that's a that's a good point. Yep. Uh, but anyway, sorry, I, I digressed a little bit there. But a lot, you know, aside from a couple of you know quotes and stuff like that, like there was nothing about this soundtrack that I wanted people to listen to and say like I think this person is making fun of this era, sure, or, sure, or anything like that. Like I, you know, I I did as much research as I could because I, I respect the music and I wanted to maybe add add something to the art form as opposed to just mimicking it. Sure, yeah. So, so you know... I guess it's that the, fine line between... You can do, you can do as, as much work as possible and you, you know, you can easily still fail at something like that. Sure. Um, but, I, you know, I 
did my best to like get that across i think it's like the fine line between being uh derivative in a respectful way but not satirical and it's like there's this there's this window in there um but i i definitely think absolutely just as an encouragement i think you nailed it when i listen to the cuphead soundtrack you know i don't I, I I sense the admiration, you know, in the in the soundtrack itself. I sense that it there's mm-hmm. a there's a sweetness and a reverence there. I don't sense that you're poking fun or it's like vapid or anything. So um Yeah, and that's that was, you know, that was a genuine concern for me anyways, that it was uh and any even the same, it was the same with uh you know, Chad and Jared uh, in terms of the, the the game itself. Like they're you know, they wanted to pay tribute to that era and not just, it's not just a surface level, look what we can do, but they actually, you know, they love the cartoons from that era. And so it was, you know, and they, and they love the games that Cuphead is based on as well. Um, the con- Contra, anything from Treasure, you know. So nothing about what they were doing or what we tried to do in anything, I would say was a surface level endeavor. It was like we really wanted to add to the oeuvres so to speak and not just do something poke fun at it you know so yeah in any case that was my uh my brief diatribe on that's that. that's really valuable and it's really cool to kind of get your insight into that mm-hmm. um you mentioned that you had a really good teacher and in the in the other interview that i heard with you um with the supermarcado bros you know you you said that it was just an incredible uh, privilege to have him during that time of your life when you were writing this music between yeah. the, <clears throat> excuse me, between the, the resources, the written resources that you were diving into. And by the way, the reason I asked you about if you were an avid reader is because in my experience, creative people, especially peers of mine, younger creative people are not. And I, I wonder how much more our art would be enhanced if we maybe stepped away from our DAW for a second or stepped away from our keyboard and dove into mm-hmm. some of that stuff, into into the source material, into the, the psychology behind creativity and diving into the people who have codified these principles, like all the resources that you mentioned. So I just, I think it's inspiring. I think it's cool. It makes me want to, it makes me want to go buy all those on Amazon, but I'll refrain. Um, and instead, well, you, you could. I totally could, um, but I but I, but, you know, I need money for that, unfortunately. Well, that's true. Well, the, the li- libraries, uh, you know, I I didn't actually buy too many things. I'm, I'm a library guy. That's uh, true. So I got what I could from there. But I, I you know, yeah, like I, I like reading because I enjoy it. Yeah. But I think there is a lot. I think a lot of the people that I really respect as artists, they tend to be fairly well-rounded or it's, it seems like that anyways. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like Bo, David Bowie is one of my, is one of my absolute heroes. And he was like a, a reading fiend. Like his son just started um, in January. You follow Duncan Jones. who's also a great, uh, great director, but he's doing a, uh, cause David Bowie had like a list of like his hundred favorite books or whatever. So every, every month there's now like a David Bowie reading list starting last month, actually. And his wow. son is like posting, like, okay, everyone, we're gonna read this book this month, and then we'll discuss it. That and it's like on, really it's on Twitter. Cool. It, it, it's amazing. So I've I've gotten into that, and uh, but I think I mean books is one or one avenue, but there's also, you know, 
other types of music. There's film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of worthwhile stuff checking out there, and there's there's a lot of really like just easy you know entertainment out there. Sure. I'm I'm more interested in like watching things. I want you know watching things I don't even necessarily or watch or want necessarily want to read, but like because they're like I might get something out of it that I can use elsewhere. You know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. I, I listen to tons of music that I don't necessarily enjoy, but I'm interested in where it's coming from. What have you been listening to lately? Uh, well, actually, lately I've been listening to a lot of stuff that I do enjoy. But uh, I've been kind of going back, and there's a whole bunch. I realized there was a bunch of holes in my uh, in my in my listening routine. There was a bunch of you know a whole bunch of Dylan albums that I wasn't familiar with. Um. Uh, a couple Paul Simon albums and subsequently Simon and Garfunkel albums. So I've been listening to those. Uh, so this year. Paul Book Simon ends, and uh, I heard bookends for the first time, like three weeks ago. And it absolutely blew my mind. I was like, these guys are just, like so experimental. It's insane. And Simon, they have this like, you know, happy, like folk duo vibe, but they don't really like they're super, you know, artistic. So that's been lately. I've been listening to a lot of South African pop music as well lately because i find it also is uh, really interesting and quite gorgeous what are some south african yeah. pop artists i'm gonna write this down that sounds really cool well i mean like the the big ones would be like uh Hugh Masekalia, who just passed away unfortunately uh miriam mckeba um this i have i got a bunch of albums from the library which are um township music albums from like the apartheid era and they're super interesting wow I mean, if you listen to, like, the, one of the things, you know, Graceland is one of my, like, Desert Island discs, for sure. And, like, you know, you listen to a lot of the stuff, and that's where Paul Simon got. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off, but you were talking about Paul Simon. But I think he's doing his farewell tour. He is, in fact. Um, so I was going to tell you that Paul Simon is by far my biggest influence. Musically, oh, nice. lyrically, Simon and Garfunkel. Like I know his whole catalog. I I'm obsessed with him. I go through seasons where I listen to nothing but but Paul Simon stuff. Um, he's a genius. He's a genius. He he's he is a genius man. Um, and the, Graceland though is such like that album is just oh like, it's it's perfect. I mean I love Graceland. Yeah. I mean when it comes to the two of them, I'd say Bridge Over Troubled Water would be my favorite mm-hmm. Simon and Garfunkel album. Um, and uh, yeah, I know I I hear exactly what you're saying about their experimental sort of. Uh, kind of pushing the envelope. Um, have you heard the song by them? The sun is burning in the sky. I think it's the sun is burning. Uh, what album is it on? Or is it a? It might be on Wednesday morning, three a.m. Let me see. The sun. Oh, so you know, I that that one the library doesn't have, and I haven't. Uh, or maybe they do have it, and I haven't. It hasn't come in yet. Uh, yeah, uh the sun is burning. Looks like it might be on Old Friends. Okay. Um. Anyway, compilation. I'll, I, yeah. I won't spoil it for you, but listen. If you if you get a chance to, you can probably find it on YouTube. Well, you could definitely find it on YouTube. Check out that song and listen closely to the lyrics, and you'll see just how they were pushing the envelope super early on. Um. Mm-hmm. And and so that's a that's a great one. But anyway, we got on a Paul well, Simon tangent, read, which is a great tangent. To get I just on. read the Paul Simon uh, biography too. Um. Oh, month wow. and a half ago, which I think was fairly like I don't think he really wanted it written because it definitely portrays uh, certain aspects of him in an unfavorable light. But uh, 
he was a bit of a control freak, and that's cool. Yeah, he was. I've heard some. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've heard some stories about him that have made me sad, just because you know when ah. you put your heroes on a pedestal. Yeah, it's never a good idea to do that. Yeah, that's that's a good point. It's shame on me. It is a good. It is an interesting book, though. Well, I'll definitely I have mean, to check that out. To, yeah. I wanted to ask, you know, what the biggest insight or lesson that you took away from um, having the teacher going through all these resources and composing Cuphead. I mean, I take it you were you were a different. You thought about music and thought about composing in a different way from before all this happened. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe share some lessons that you learned, some insights that you learned, some opinions that might have changed of yours? I don't know if I really can. I mean, I think it was, uh, it, it ended up being pretty well what I expected it to be. And, you know, I, if you go to music school now and you're actually serious about getting a job at any point, you're pretty well, you end up living in school for four years, six years, eight years kind of thing. Yeah. And so like, you know, when I was doing my undergrad, I was practicing eight or 10 hours a day. And it was just, that's kind of what you did if you wanted to like actually, you know, succeed, I think. Sure. And, uh, you know, I think going into this, I kind of knew what the procedure was going to be because I also know myself and I, I know that I'm, I try to be fairly thorough, I think. Right. Um, so I, I mean, I don't know if I learned, I mean, other than like, te- you know, technical stuff about how to actually do it, but I didn't really learn anything about it's like, it's literally just like preparation and working as hard as you can. What were some of the big um, things that your teacher helped you in? So if you would bring a chart to him, um, what were kind of the big takeaways that he would c- contribute to during throughout the whole process? Uh, I mean, you know, we talked a lot about, I mean, voice leading is, he's a big uh, proper voice leading proponent. So I learned a lot about proper voice leading. Um, like four part harmony, like, uh, like tonal harmony type yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, being conscious of the instrument's ranges and uh, their capabilities. I wrote a few things on trombone, which most people probably wouldn't be able to play. But we also knew that we had literally Canada's best trombone player on the session. So um, played them. They were still difficult. But uh, there was, you know... A lot of it is, um, I've been in enough sessions where I've, I've played charts, which are, you know, you can tell are poorly written and they're not, they're not hard, but because they're, they're organized poorly or written on the page poorly or not clear, you, you take a, you take an easy piece of music and you make it difficult for musicians. Mm-hmm. And specifically for this project, because we didn't have a lot of studio time, you know, we had, you know, at best like an hour or two, um, that we had to get each tune in. Um, a lot of it was just showing up as prepared as possible for the recording sessions with the charts looking as good as possible, um, making sure that things are correct and making sure that they are essentially playable. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, that was a big, a big thing. Like if you make something that sounds really hard, but then it, they don't play it well, then it's going to sound hard and it's going to sound bad. Sure. Um, you can make something, you can, you, know, you can take a few notes away and it's still going to be a cool line. And it's still going to be impressive, but it's going to be a lot more playable. Right. So, I mean, I guess 
you know, he did definitely gave me a, a way, I think, of thinking about uh, thinking about things intelligently and a bit more uh, objectively, maybe. I'm frankly not much different now than I was five years ago. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah. Other than just, yeah, learning the specifics of, uh, but I mean, I think that's it, you know, also if you're, if you're literally, if you are doing something on your own or you're learning to do it for the first time, like finding a, a good teacher who you work well with is completely invaluable. Like there's no, what you can, what you can spend five hours learning from a book they can show you in 20 minutes, you know, they, like, you know, like they might have a way of, of breaking it down. So it's sure. like, uh, as long as they're, they know their stuff and they can, they can show you know explain it well you're probably going to get um no matter how good of a book learner you are having someone demonstrate something for you i think in most people's cases um makes its way to the uh the brain cortex much faster um i want to ask you if you have any advice and this can be philosophical advice business advice composition advice for younger composers who are uh, trying to make something happen in this field and mm -hmm. get gigs uh, sc scoring games do you have any advice and it can range like i said the gamut of any of those topics for younger composers uh well the advice i've had a few people email me about advice and my general rule is don't be an asshole that is a great rule and it will get you uh, I don't so know. far i don't know if that yeah i don't know if that uh applies as much if you're working you know as like a freelance composer if you're working in a, any sort of group situation or if you're you know a performing musician uh not being a total pain to work with sure um you can have strong opinions but you also need to be flexible sure and it's remarkable how many people i don't really know that or have have yet to learn that skill so i think that's an invaluable word travels fast if people don't want to work with you or if you are difficult. That's a really good point. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I don't really know how to offer advice to uh, indie composers because I didn't really go through, uh, the, I think, the typical channels, and I don't even really know what those are. Like, I guess making a demo reel and uh, shopping it out maybe is something that people do, but that's kind of foreign to me. Sure. There are definitely, I mean, you know, um, there are definitely, it seems like now, tons of networking opportunities particularly in the states there's the, the pax i'm going to be at pax east in, in april oh nice um i'm speaking on a, a panel there i think um but i mean that seems like a huge that i mean that i, I guess that's maybe a bit more industry-wide um same with gdc but then there's like um the audio gang uh i know them through facebook i guess they have their own website but I feel if you're uh, an independent composer working for games, joining Audio Gang it seems to be like invaluable. Mm -hmm. Do your homework, work hard, don't be an asshole. Those are fairly. They still don't necessarily guarantee success, but um, that's a good start. That's a really yeah, good start. it's a it's a good start. And the harder you work, the luckier you get. I think is the uh, saying, right? Sure. Yeah. Some something along those lines. So. If you're not, if no one knows you exist and you're not doing anything and you're sitting at home being like, why is nobody hiring me to write for their games? Well, there's, you know, a reason for that, maybe. Like, people need to know that you're even around. My, for a long time, my general rule of thumb as a freelancer was, despite, like, the, the issue with being a percussionist is you're always buying gear. 
and you're always upgrading gear, and it just never ends. I just bought a xylophone like last week, like it's nonstop. Um, but I think that if you when you start making money, it's a good rule of thumb to reinvest a, a, at least a small percentage of what you make into what got you there in the first place. Sure. So like if you get if you get work making writing for a game, then maybe like half of what you make from that, half of your fee could be into upgrading your DAW or getting a better sound sample package or something, you know. Like obviously you need to eat. But right. I think you need to, I think um reinvesting in the reason that you're getting paid in the first place um is maybe something that people overlook. You're investing in yourself. Right. Yeah. Which is important. That's a that's a really good way to look at it. Um, another skill creative people often don't have is, you know, trying to treat treat it like a business. You know, like uh, business skills, practical, mm-hmm. you know, fiscal discipline. There are also plenty of good books uh, on, you know, like there's investing for dummies and other such, you know, financial uh, planning books for they don't, you know, they don't seem to teach that in school and they should. Or I don't think a lot of schools teach even just basic making a budget and sure. or, you know running the business kind of thing like i will say this about if you're a freelancer which i assume most people also writing music for games like they're probably freelancers like not an easy lifestyle um it, and it's a it's a, definitely a lot of you have to be really committed to it yeah it's not it's worth you know it's worth it but it's it's not like going to going to the office every day and coming home and then you don't think about it like you're always kind of like if you're self-employed right You've got you got a lot of uh, plates in the air, so is that is that the hardest thing you think about being a freelancer is just the inability to sort of you know leave work at work, come home at five, and be with your family like or whatever. Uh, it I mean it can be hard if you if you don't enjoy that. I mean you know maybe that's also not cut. Everyone's not necessarily cut out for that either, mm-hmm. like which is fine. I, I mean, I, I personally enjoy it, but I, I'm kind of used to living that way now. Like, when I moved, you know, I got pretty good at living below the poverty line for a couple of years, too. So, um, you ha- you know, you learn to be uh, creative in that sense. Right, right. Yeah. You, I, I guess you have to be willing to, uh, you know, if, if this is not just a side job for you, and if you want to pursue this as a career, then it's you need to be willing to accept that risk and you need to be, you know, maybe, you know, I know lots of people who give themselves deadlines. Like they say, like, you know, if I don't have, I give myself five years or if I'm not as successful the time I'm 30, then I will change careers, which is, you know, not necessarily, it's not, I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad, Mm -hmm. you know, it depends on the person, but some people, you know, it's, if you're not, you're not cut out for it, that's okay. It's good to know that though. It's a lot of wisdom, man. You know, that's, that's why I actually enjoy doing talking to whoever wants to talk. I mean, it's probably good to talk to like a professional and get like financial advice, I guess, to a certain extent. The first year that I had a pretty good year, I got a, you know, because I wasn't, you don't pay taxes as a freelancer. It doesn't come off every one of your checks necessarily. Right. Like, you got to set it a, aside. a big chunk once a year. And like, I didn't really set much aside because I was like, how much could it possibly be? And it was, oh, yeah. You, know, you got dinged. way more than I had saved. Yeah. And I, I I know a lot of people who have been in that same situation where like the first year that they do well, they're like, Oh, this is right. And then it's, uh, they're like, Oh, yep. I can't actually afford to pay this. So, yeah. So, I mean, once you start doing well, you're not necessarily, you know, be smart about your, 
Don't waste money. Actually, you know, uh, I will say that uh, I will push my, my vegetarianism a bit. It's a lot cheaper to be a vegetarian. Oh, you're a vegetarian. I, I am. But it's uh, not not for financial reasons, really. But it does actually, uh, um, aside from all of the other benefits, not to be too preachy about it. But uh, No, not at all. It's, it is, you know, if you're a lot, you, rice and beans, you can survive on that. And it's dirt cheap. That's a really so. good point. Well, there you go. Yeah. So I think the I think the moral of the story is, you know, if Chris Madigan can live below the poverty line, we don't have any excuses. You know, if we want to be a composer, we can hustle, eat beans and rice and make it happen. Practice fiscal discipline. Yeah, it's not like awesome, but I mean, if you if love I, it, you, if you love like, it enough, you know, if you. If but you, again, if that had been, do. you know, if that had been, you know, more than a, a few years. If it had reached some sort of like, if I do this for more than five years, I'm going to change careers. Like, you can't do that your entire life necessarily either. Sure, sure. Or you can, but it might not. You know, there might be a point where you just want to say like, okay, enough. On the last, the last interview I heard with you, you were pretty eager to get back into the the classical percussion thing, playing gigs that way. Um, yeah, I mean that's where'd you see yourself? That's what I'm doing at the moment. Gotcha. I don't I don't see anything radically different unless <coughs> excuse me unless any um you know, big other interesting projects come up. I don't have any other composition stuff on the go. Mm -hmm. And I'm not interested in, in becoming a regular uh, composer because I'm very slow at it and it eats up a lot of time. Right. So, I mean, I would write if, you know, like I, like I might've mentioned, like if they do a Cuphead 2, if that happens to occur and they want me to write music, then I, that's something I would love to do. Yeah. Or if they did a different project. Um, I think for me to want to take on the, the incredible workload of any other uh, writing projects, it would have to be uh, a hell of an interesting project with a uh, far off deadline. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, but at the moment I'm, yeah, I'm just keeping myself busy uh, doing lots of playing and doing lots of, uh, you know, do my own independent study. Well, that's Trying to learn guitar. Oh, nice. That's yeah. Awesome. I learned the E minor today and A minor. Hey, I'm, I'm literally not. I'm that far. It's like page two of the book. So. Way to go, man! You can play. Yeah, yeah. About half of a Paul of a Paul Simon song. Is there pretty simple? Possibly. Slip sliding away. Uh, only has like four chords. So I think that should be your first goal. I could. I could maybe uh print out some text for that tune. Yeah, slip sliding away is a great, that great song. You bust that, that out a nice tune, yeah. at a party. Everyone knows that song. talk to someone and you just leave thinking wow you're really smart I, I don't know how else to phrase it but I just felt like Chris was such a fount of knowledge of all kinds anyway my biggest takeaways from this interview were to take a break from the computer social media even from composing in our our DAW and read, read. One of my favorite quotes says that if you give me six hours to cut down a tree, I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. And I think as creatives, we could benefit from a little more axe sharpening. Anyway, this has been Composer Code. I'm Matt Kenyon. Go read a book. <laughs>